Hey everyone, Pastor Brandon here, and welcome to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the sermon today. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning, and welcome to our major series this year out of the book of Acts. I hope you are ready. The most significant year in all of history, that's quite a statement, is around 33 AD, Jesus' last year of life and ministry. It's the year where he literally dies. It's the year of his physical resurrection from the dead. It's It's the year of his ascension. It actually splits history. I mean, I don't know if you think about it. We say, oh, I'm living in the year 2023 because of his life, death, and resurrection. History is divided by him. Now, when Jesus came back from the dead, this is where this new movement was born, which many of us are part of watching this, called the church. Now, in the following three decades, this new movement began to spread, which now, of course, is the largest religious movement in history. It spread from very humble roots, of course, to every corner of the modern globe. Hundreds of millions of people today, as we're literally meeting, will chant and sing and pray and read and give and live and preach and serve in the name of Jesus of Nazareth from almost every tribe and tongue and people group and family and nation. Uh, This movement has changed the fabric of civilizations, of culture. It's informed education, medicine, law, freedom, human dignity, and most importantly, it's changed the destiny of billions of personal lives. But it all started with a small group of men and women waiting for the impossible. It started when they started praying, Holy Spirit, would you show up? And he did. So welcome to the book of Acts. Many people call it the Acts of the Apostles. Really, the book probably should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And the prayer, as we get going, the hope, the declaration, is that the expectation and the experience of the church 2,000 years ago remains ours today in this moment. Holy Spirit, we need you to move. In our post-Christian, post-modern, yet modern, deeply sexualized, deeply divided, multicultural, pluralistic, radically globalized, on-the-go mobile, connected, yet very lonely and fragmented world, Spirit of God, move again. Now, we can mouth those words, of course, as Christians, but we have to wrestle with something right up front as we get going and starting this series. Many good Christians Love reading the book of Acts as narrative, as history. That's what God did then, and that's true. But this is not just history. This also is a call to see this repeated again in every generation. And so, with great biblically uh, undergirded expectation, we together need to ask as a local church things like, well, what was the history of the early church, and what did they value, and who were those people, and how did they experience worldview, and how did they do pastoral care, and what did they preach, and how did they live, and what did they do, and actually, how did they define and handle persecution, and how did they do church, and how did they deal with other religions, and how did, we, how did they see families and literally cities change? Okay, now our journey today begins, Acts chapter 1, so you've got a Bible, a virtual digital, uh, uh, to pull it out, and let's do it together. Uh, it starts like this, Acts chapter 1, very personal place. In my former book, Theophilus, 
I wrote uh, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, so the author is Luke, and he writes the Gospel of Luke and Acts. It's sort of like volume one or two, or actually something, it's one document. Luke is a medical doctor who becomes a follower of Jesus, and he begins interviewing and researching all that took place in Jesus's life to root it in real, accessible history. He's on the ground for the first 30 years. He feels the need to defend this move of God and help understand, help people understand what it is and what it's not. So he interviews all the witnesses who are still alive, and there were tons at that point. It was so close to the original moment. And he also interviews all of those that knew those who had now died. He's writing to a guy named Theophilus, and there's a lot of debates too strong. There's a lot of questions about who Theophilus is. A lot of people think he is an upper middle class Roman maybe even a politician, because most excellent Theophilus is a formal title given, for example, to governors. So in other words, this guy is a politician, and also there's this sense of wealth. In other words, the guy's probably wearing Gucci and Louis most of the time, if that's who he is. And actually, a lot of people think that he's a government official that Luke is writing to, to actually show him what the Christian movement is, what it's not, to defend it, and actually say, you don't need to attack it or persecute it. Other people think actually he's a non-Jewish Christian wavering or wondering if the Christian faith is true or thinking about leaving now it's getting hard and persecution is coming. Uh, we would almost use the phrase like deconstruction in our day. So no matter who Theophilus is, Luke's goal is to give him a more accurate, informed, historically rooted moment to explain the Christian faith and tell us and tell him, of course, why Jesus is so good. So this is very, very helpful for all of us today. See, if you're a seeker here today, that is, you're seeking, but you're unsure if you're a skeptic, your hands are folded literally or in your heart, you're not sure if you're from another formal faith, if you're a spiritual, if you're a brand new Christian, if you're a long-term Christian, this is a great book to walk through because we're going to be witnessed to, we're going to be spoken to, Our, the faith gets clarified, it's written to help someone understand, it encourages, it should inspire to action, and if you're a Christian, it should ground you and give you hope. So let me read chapter one again. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, did you notice it? I didn't. Uh, Jesus began to do this, which means He's not done this thing. He started it. In other words, he lit the match and he didn't walk away and disappear or just die because he rose from the dead. He's actually still at work. Now Jesus is partnering with the church to do what he started. Okay, so he says, look, I'm writing you, Theophilus, about what Jesus began to do. And then he says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken into heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he's chosen. Okay. All right, all right, all right. Two things matter so much when we get going here. First, it says Jesus is taken up into heaven. This puts everything into perspective. This is called the ascension, where Jesus is placed at God the Father's right hand, which in Jewish theology means the place of all authority in the universe. Ready? Jesus has all authority not Rome. Uh, Jesus has all authority, not the religious establishment. Uh, Jesus has all authority, not other faiths. Jesus has all authority, not other faith leaders. Jesus has all authority, not politics. Jesus has all authority, not money. 
Jesus has all authority, not philosophy. Jesus has authority, you, you fill in the blank. Jesus has all authority, all power, all dominion. In other words, what we read right when we get going is Jesus is in charge right now. This is Jesus's world. And that matters when things are unstable. That matters when things feel uncertain. That matters when new ground is being broken. It matters when you suffer for him. Second, we already noticed the Holy Spirit's on the scene. And let's not forget who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Blessed Trinity. Not a ghost, not some force. He's the one who convicts us of sin. He's the one that lets us see Jesus in the first place. He's the one who brings Jesus into our life. He's the one who gives us spiritual gifts. He's the one who gives us his character. He's the one that empowers us to live a Christian life. He's the one that possesses us. He's the one that guarantees our own physical resurrection. So right up front, as we get going, this is what Luke says. Jesus is in charge and the Holy Spirit is here. This is a very good beginning. Okay, it says in verse 2 that between Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead and his ascension, he was giving instructions to his followers. Now this is also really important. It reads that Jesus was actually giving commands, orders, not suggestions, suggestions or musing. Jesus tells them what he wants to continue to do with them by the power of the Spirit. So for 40 days after he rose from the dead, he spent his most precious time with them teaching and preaching, not ruminating, what, not, what do you feel, not what is your purpose. He's like, no, I'm telling you your purpose. Now, in this moment, Luke pauses, thinking about Theophilus, and he says this. After Jesus' suffering, uh, he showed himself, Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. So let's just pause and get this really clear. Our whole movement is based on the idea that Jesus actually historically was here. He actually really was executed. He died, died. He was dead for three days, and then he actually physically came back from the dead. Now, we did weeks on this why this is historically true, can this be proven in a series called The Rocks Don't Move Until They Do, a series on deconstruction, doubt, and skepticism. You can go back and watch that. But let me just do a little moment for some of you who are new to this conversation. You probably don't know this, but 2,000 years ago, Greeks and Romans did not believe in physical resurrection at all. They didn't understand it, they didn't believe in it, they didn't want it. The only religious movement on earth that taught physical resurrection from the dead were the Jews. And they actually taught it happens at the end of time and every single person experiences it at once. But then this wild thing happens 2,000 years ago where a bunch of Orthodox Jews, who are the only ones who believe in resurrection anyway, start saying that only one person came back from the dead and they used to know him, then he died, then he came back from the dead and they met him and they hugged him and they ate with him and they talked to him and they walked with him even though he'd been brutally murdered and was dead dead. The point that you as seekers and skeptics need to start thinking about, honestly, historically, is this. How did the massive fire of Christianity start when there was literally no oxygen in the room to light the fire, let alone the spark? Because Greeks don't believe in it, Romans don't believe in it, and actually it happens to everyone, not just one. So no one believes this. And, that, and yet all these people start saying, oh my goodness, this is real. Unless, of course, he did come back from the dead. Even Jesus' stepbrother James did not believe, did not, he thought his brother was a lunatic, but when he met his brother, dead brother, crucified, executed brother, back from the dead, 
he starts actually leading the church movement and then ends up himself being murdered on behalf of his brother for preaching he was alive. This is, Paul's, this is Luke's point, and Paul uh, sort of works it out later. If Jesus rose from the dead, everything changes. If Jesus rose from the dead, atheism is resolved. If Jesus rose from the dead, agnosticism resolved. If Jesus rose from the dead, every religion has to reevaluate itself at its core. If Jesus rose from the dead, death is answered, and we know what lies beyond, beyond the grave because actually someone came back from there and tells us what's there. If Jesus rose from the dead, the human family doesn't need to ask anymore, who is God? What is he like? Is he even involved? If Jesus rose from the dead, you can meet God. If Jesus rose from the dead, there's purpose in life more than money, sex, power, being moral or religious. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then the coffin we will all be put in or the cremation fire that we will all experience is not the true end of us. And Luke's point is actually he really did rise from the dead. And then he says, actually, Jesus appeared to this group over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now, if you know your Bible just a little bit, 40 days should send up all these flares for you. Number one, Moses was on Mount Sinai twice, getting God's word, the law, for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, and then, of course, the people of God walked in the wilderness for 40 years. And then Moses, when they come to the promised land, sent out spies for 40 days to investigate and check out the promised land. Elijah fasted for 40 days. Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Every single one of these grand moments in history were preparation moments. They were almost like a birth moment where the new thing is about to take place. God's next big move of history is about to begin. So of course, this pattern is being repeated. And interesting, just to catch this, Jesus teaches before he gives power. At the heart of Jesus' teaching over those 40 days is something called the kingdom of God. Now, let me just do this again. The kingdom of God is not a place yet. So if you fly to Tel Aviv tomorrow and hang out in Israel or Jerusalem, that's not the kingdom of God. The church, as a, as a global movement or a local church like Sanctus, not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God actually isn't geographical yet. I love when one person said, the kingdom of God is any space or place where the reign and rule of God is welcome, embraced, and accepted through Jesus. When you become a Christian, you become a member of the kingdom of God because you've asked Jesus to be your savior and king. You live under his father's lordship. Now, one day, all of creation will be the kingdom of God when the new heavens and new earth come, but that's not yet. So in those 40 days, he's teaching about the kingdom of God, and then somewhere in those 40 days of mystery and excitement and life change and joy, something changes. Verse 4, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, notice that, ghosts don't eat. He gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, in a few days you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So after proving he is alive, Jesus was alive, teaching them, walking with them, eating them, eating with them, hugging them, being close to them, uh, giving hope, rebuilding friendships, Jesus says, I'm leaving. And I told you for three plus years that I was going to leave, but then I'm going to send the Spirit. The very first time that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, the first time he appeared to them in the book of Luke, of course, he blows them away, walks through walls, he's physically there. And he said it even in that incredible moment in Luke 24, 49, I'm going to send you what my father has promised. You stay in Jerusalem until you've been clothed with power from on high. Clothed with power. This clothing changes everything. I've shared this story before, but let me do it again. Um, 
when I was in junior high, uh, my parents didn't have a lot of money, and so we couldn't afford all the clothes we wanted. I wanted, that is, as a junior high boy. And in my generation, I've shared this before, I'm, I'm now 48, um, when I was in grade eight, the, the place to shop was Randy River. I mean, that was the store uh, to access if you had money. Uh, for the females out there uh, you know, in our community, it's sort of, I suppose, like Aritzia today, except in the opposite for boys in, in back in the 90s and late 80s. So, okay, so this is like a real like moment and I didn't have the money to afford any of this. Now, there was a guy in our school named Brad. Brad was the guy. He was the most popular guy, and he had all his clothing from Randy River. I mean, he was the guy. And interestingly, I had a similar body type and shape and actually hair like him, but I couldn't afford anything. Anyway, I saved and saved, and my parents saved, and I went finally to Randy River, and I was able to buy three quarters of an outfit. And I remember I was able to use my dad's shoes that were much older because they had come back in style. And so I remember I walked into school with this brand new, almost finished outfit from Randy River. I was clothed differently. I think one of the pieces was like an emerald green vest. Anyway, okay. So I walk in and all the popular kids were actually behind me when I walked in. And they thought I was Brad. They're like, hey, Brad, hey, Brad. And then I turned around and they were like, oh, what? You know, because I had a similar quaffed of hair when I had hair. And they were like, I can't believe that's you, John, that you look so amazing. And then a few girls walked by, hi. And I was like, oh, and all the things. Okay, good. The problem is I only had three quarters of an outfit. <laughs> and that lasts one day. And then the next day comes and you don't have that thing. So basically I was popular or impressive with my clothing for maybe four hours and then of course it ran out and then it was really awkward because I'd wear it every once in a while and then have to wear all the other clothes and then that led to all sorts of other things. Here's, here's the point. That clothing made impact for a moment. This clothing changes everything forever. Jesus says to them, I'm going to leave because the Spirit of God is going to be given to you. You're going to be clothed in power permanently that's not from you. Now, can you imagine hearing this as an Orthodox Jew and a follower of the Messiah? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Because remember, they knew their Old Testaments. You're telling me, Jesus, you're telling me that the same Spirit that actually hovered over creation in Genesis 1-2, the same presence that was literally that pillar of cloud, of fire and lightning, when we, the Jews, walked for 40 years in the wilderness, like with Moses, you're talking about the same like fire and cloud that was given when Moses was in the middle of it and he got the Ten Commandments. You're telling me that same fiery experience and that overwhelming presence that when Moses walked into that tent called the tabernacle and he used to speak to God like a friend speaks to a friend, that, the same fire that filled the temple during Solomon's time, the same fire that came down and consumed the, like the altar on Mount Carmel with Elijah, the same overwhelming presence that when Elijah, sorry, Ezekiel and, and Ezekiel and Isaiah were called and they were overwhelmed, the same glory that shone around those shepherds when they announced that you were going to be born, the same spirit that overshadowed your mom Mary and you came into the world, the same spirit that you were given at your baptism, we get that too? I mean, you would expect, oh my goodness, and this is epic, and this is amazing, this is so great, I'm speechless, generosity, grace, mercy, let's go, Spirit of God, Yes, but instead, 
Though they know all this truth, they, we see how broken and politically and ethnically centric they were, how self-centered we, they were, how distracted they were. So when they met together, they asked Jesus, So Lord, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus would have been like, I'm sorry, what did you just ask? I just promised you the Holy Spirit permanently. Have I not said this for you? Have you not heard what I've been teaching you for like years? I mean, they're still lured back to wrong thinking and wrong desires. They had been taught their whole lives that when the Messiah came, it would be political, territorial, a national kingdom, a political kingdom. And since Jesus has risen from the dead, he is now, like David, going to become the warrior king, and he's going to deal with the Romans and kill them and wipe them out. He's going to destroy or put all the enemies of Israel in their right place. Basically, and I'm not saying this in a political way, it's like we heard in America, make America great again. This is going to be like, make Israel great again. And you're going to do it militarily and spiritually, and you're going to make us the center of the world by religious and military might, and no one's going to stand up against us anymore. And Jesus says, my dad's kingdom starts with heart change. Let me say this again. Let me give you a stronger, more nobler, a fairer, eternal, God-inspired vision and mission. He said, look, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority. What my Father wants to do with Israel is actually not even your business or concern because actually something way more significant than make Israel great again is here. I died for the sins of the Jews or the world. I overcame and overcame death and rose again and conquered Satan just for you or my Jewish family or all people. By the way, you better get ready to get shocked. Many of your enemies are actually going to become your brothers and sisters. The sign of my power and witness to everyone is you're going to, you're going to love people you've been taught to hate. Uh, verse 8, you're going to receive my power when the Holy Spirit lightens upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, oh, and Samaria, those people that you hate, oh, and to the ends of the earth. I mean, this is the old cry out of Zechariah near the end of the Old Testament. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by voting. Not by violence. Not by making one group look like or feel like another group. Not by manipulation. Not by forced conversion. But by the Holy Spirit. Self-sufficiency and self-confidence is death to our movement. We can never be sent out or overcome the nonstop barriers we will encounter in our hearts, let alone in our families, let alone in our world, with natural or acquired gifts. I'm sending you out not in your power, not in your abilities. I'm sending you out with the fruit of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. You're actually being sent out now in the mission of the Spirit. You're just joining Him in what He's already up to. That word, by the way, witness really matters. It means one who does not just intellectually know. They know from personal knowledge and facts it is true. He basically is saying, you know the Father fully through me, and I'm going to give you my spirit, and you get to go into the world and begin to reverse the effects of Adam and Eve. There's no need to hide anymore because I make you clean. So what happens? Well, they obeyed, they waited, they prayed, they wondered, they were full of expectancy. It says in verse 14, they joined together consistently in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And so they waited and they prayed, and they waited and they prayed, and they waited and they prayed, and nothing happened. And then it did. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were together in one place. I love how God 
is so strategic. It was Pentecost, celebrated 50 days after Passover. It's one of the three pilgrimage festivals where Jews would come to Jerusalem from the whole known world to the temple to offer offerings to God. Hundreds of thousands of Orthodox Jews and those that had converted to Judaism would gather together as one religious family in diversity to actually cry out and celebrate the living God. Many Jews actually believe the day of Pentecost is the same day where God gave Moses the law. And so on that day, in a very unexpected way, out of the blue, without warning, the God they came to worship moved, but didn't show up at the temple. He showed up on a side street in an unknown room with an unlikely group of people. It says, suddenly, verse 2, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house and where they were sitting, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and started resting on each one of them. So sound and wind and cloud and fire, all that Old Testament stuff right here. 600 years earlier, God said this would happen, that his breath, his spirit, would live permanently in people. Ezekiel 8, 14, I'll put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your land. Well, it gets even more wild in verse 4, and all of them, not just some of them, were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together bewildered because each of them heard people speaking in their own language. Now, you read this, if you keep reading down the page, if you scroll down, you'll notice something. There are 15 geographical areas mentioned with languages from each one of them. And when you look at this and you find out where they came from, this is really amazing, but we don't catch it because we're living in 2023. The, move, the, the list actually moves from east and west and, and north to south. It starts with the Parthians and ends in Rome, which is the farthest eastern part of the empire to the farthest western part of the Roman Empire. Literally deserts and islands and everything in between. God is answering their cry, Spirit of God, move. And amazingly, in this moment, he gives all these different people, including, by the way, if you thought about this, Jesus' mom, the ability to speak in languages they don't even know. And this is so kind of God, that God would speak to me in a personal language, in a cultural way that, that I understand. Well, then the crowd says, utterly amazed, uh, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Now, <laughs> this is the unsaid dark side that comes to the surface. Galileans were considered uneducated, not in, not smart. So if you're in the States and there's that sort of a brutal language, you're a, you know, you're a redneck, you're a hillbilly, you're from Alabama, like that colloquial wickedness. Or in, in Canada, sometimes people in Newfoundland or Newfoundland, it's the same thing. Or Cockney in England, they, those are the flyover people. This is unbridled, rude bias. And God's like, uh, of course. I've not used the educated, the center of the elite. I've using, you, chosen to use Galileans, the so-called backwater people, those people with that terribly thick accent you don't really like, and I move on the fringe, not in the center, and the results are dramatic. How is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. See, this is where the story even gets more amazing. God isn't just reversing the effects of Eden. He's reversing... Ready? The effects of Babel. All the way back in Genesis. Do you remember what we as humans did together out of rebellion against God when he said, go and multiply and spread over the whole earth? And we said, no. 
Genesis 8, 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches into the heavens so we may make our name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. This great human project is unity of unbelief expressed through city and tower. We will do this. Since we as humans are blocked from Eden, we'll force ourselves up into heaven. This is power, it's spiritual wisdom from the bottom up, that heaven down. It's the communal cry. It's literally the clay saying to the potter, you're dismissed and you're not needed anymore. By the way, the Tower of Babel is the invention of three things that has haunted the human family ever since. It's the invention of secular humanism. We don't need God. We'll save ourselves and control history by our own actions. It's the invention of religion. We will save ourselves by our own spiritual activity. And it's the invention of spirituality. We will enlighten ourselves. All three of those movements have us at the center. Genesis 8.5, God came down to see the city, the tower the people were building. The Lord said, as if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over the whole earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel or Babel because the Lord confused the language of the whole world and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. See, God understands he could destroy the city or topple the tower, but that's a short-term solution. This is a heart problem and the common link in rebellion is language and he severs it. He had already made an agreement with Noah. He promised he would never destroy the world again. So he destroys linguistic unity. But now, this, see, this is what's so incredible. But now, on a side street in Jerusalem, with people from the wrong place, on the wrong side of the tracks, God moves in mercy, and he begins to create a new humanity out of human diversity. In Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, a new humanity is being created. Old dividing walls begin to be abolished. And God starts this day one with the church. So the reverse of Eden, not being able to know God, being removed because of sin, it's dealt with, and also the reverse of Babel's taking place. It says in verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of this group and said they just had too much wine. I mean, this is actually what happens all the time when God moves. Some people are amazed. Some people slow down and begin to ask a series of real questions. Some people follow. Most people don't care. And others dismiss, mock, jeer, reduce, and say things like drunk, stupid, irrational, crazy, dumb. Okay, that's where we're going to stop today. Remember, we're just getting going. So first question I have for our community. Are you Theophilus? Are you a brand new Christian, trying to work this out, or not a Christian at all? Well, my invitation to you is to take time. I think God's invitation to you is to take time to listen, to hear the story, to ask, is this trustworthy? Is this true? Is this worth giving my life to? I've preached this before, but let me say it again afresh in this moment. In a world that is divided by race and divides by gender and over gender, and how much education you have or do not have, or the mistakes you have made, or the people you know or the people you don't know, in a world of violence, a world of political extremism, in a world of family breakdown, in a world of religious fanatics, in a world that's come closer and never been as far apart, in a world where there's a lot of abuse and disconnected and lonely and questioning people, in a world of rich and poor, in a world of eight billion strong, is there a person 
is there a movement that can meet the needs of humanity and answer the questions that are found in your children and in your life and in your family and your coworkers? Is there actually a person that could give you honest peace and a new start and forgiveness for all the stuff you've done in secret and in public and also at the same time set you free to forgive all the people that have hurt you and let you down? Yes. It's not too good to be true. It's not myth or fairy tale. It's real. Jesus, God in flesh, came and lived a life we could not live, though we wanted it. We've, he died a death we all deserved. And when he was raised from the dead, every sin and every demon and every experience of death, he overcame it. When you meet him by the Holy Spirit, he takes you. Good, bad, very good, very bad, terrible, and he chooses you and gives access to you and makes you holy and makes you belong, gives you a new family, calls you out of darkness into light. You join a new spiritual nation, not based on ethnicity or geographical boundaries or what, what resources you have, but a personal relationship with God through Jesus by the Spirit. And he does unbelievable things. What do you do with Jesus? This is the question that's going to grow as you begin this conversation. For we who are Christians, many of us watching this have already said yes. Some of us have heard sermons out of Acts. Not only what is true out of this book, the question is what is the Spirit trying to say? Well, number one, Jesus' last command is still our first concern. We have one message, many languages. But, you know, I love years ago, a guy named John Piper got this right when he said, I don't get excited when denominations or churches react to their lack of growth by adding new programs. I know that the reason so few conversions are happening in my church is not actually because we lack program or staff. It's because we don't actually love the lost. We don't actually yearn for their salvation. And the reason why we don't actually love them as we ought to love them is because love is a miracle that has to overcome our selfish bent. It never can be managed or maneuvered into existence. Every time it's an astonishing miracle. He's speaking to Christians, by the way. Examine yourself, he says. Does it lie within you? Does it lie within the power within you right now to weep over the spiritual destruction of people on your street? Such tears only come through a profound work of God. If we want this work of God in our life and in our church, there will have to be an agonizing prayer. God, you have to break my heart. And with such agonizing together, God might actually grant you tears. Without those tears, we will shuffle members from church to church, and few people will pass from darkness to light. See, what we're going to see is that every single moment in this book, the Holy Spirit is the center point. Take home number one. When is the last time you have been deeply moved or broken over the lostness of a friend, a neighbor, or your street. Number two, when is the last time you, we, have asked the Holy Spirit to actually overcome selfishness and actually give us this brokenness? Uh, second thing, we, we, have to, uh, we have to have ongoing empowerment with the Spirit of God to accomplish everything we do. Once again, it's so clear that our greatest desire should be to be filled with the Spirit so we can not only 
be broken, but we can actually do the thing God has called us to do. It's almost like some of us need to wrestle with God like Jacob, all night if needed. Bless me, change me. I will not stop praying to you until I have the power of the Spirit. That is the fruit of the Spirit. I need to know what my spiritual gifts are. I need you to meet with me, and I need to meet with you. I need you to put clothes on me that are not mine, and, and, and I need them to be something that is way beyond what I own or what I can buy. This actually brings up um, a really interesting thought for us at Sanctus Church uniquely. I think the question before us from God, and I, I am always careful to say that, is are we going to settle for the status quo, that is what we have right now, or will we actually wrestle with God until the Spirit of God is given in power to actually see the book of Acts happen again. You know, we, um, we used to be a church that was known for courage and sacrifice. We once were a church that would give money and time to see new ground taken and the gospel go farther, even if it did not benefit the service I attend or the site I belong to. Now we're post-COVID, we're in this new house, the vision is clear. I think the question, the crossroads that maybe our church is at, and the elders are going to have to wrestle this down, the staff is going to have to wrestle this down, key volunteers are going to have to wrestle this down, the church is, the, the crossroads that we're at is this. Are we just going to keep refining what we now have or will we decide to step out again with sacrifice and courage and the power of the Holy Spirit to take new ground? Refinement's not bad, but it can't be the all. I mean, here's the truth. My family, your family, needs a spirit-filled you. Yep. Our church needs a spirit-filled you. Neighbors, friends, family workers, co-workers, critics, our enemies need a spirit-filled you. So I suppose the takeaway is maybe like this. For those among us who are not Christians, you should just utter a simple prayer, even if you don't believe in God or you're not sure, and just say, you know what, I don't know, but Holy Spirit, you have to show me Jesus because I obviously just can't see him. Help me. And for us as Christians, the response is threefold. Number one, Holy Spirit, would you actually break my heart and to move me to gospel proclamation again, but number two, Holy Spirit, would you empower me so I actually walk in the power of the Spirit in a way I haven't ever or in a while? And lastly, uh, Holy Spirit, what do you say to the church in this crossroads moment between settling for being a good church or actually stepping out and taking new ground again? So Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit. Move in great power reveal, Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus to seekers and skeptics and, and, and people from other faiths connected to us around us. And for us, Holy Spirit, we ask you to break our hearts. Holy Spirit, we ask you actually to fill us afresh with power we have not had in a long time or actually never. And then lastly, to speak, speak to Sanctus Church. What do you say? What do you say? About status quo. What do you say about our future? What do you say in this moment in Toronto. We're expectant that you will speak as we get going together in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you can find ways to support the ministry and the Lord's vision for our church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, please hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.